Chapter 12 of Erasmus and the Age of Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mario Pineda. Erasmus and the Age of Reformation by Johann Hyoshinga. Translated by Frederick John Hoffman. Chapter 12. Erasmus's Mind. Erasmus's Mind. Ethical and aesthetic tendencies, aversion to all that is unreasonable, silly, and cumbers. His vision of antiquity pervaded by Christian faith. Renaissance of good learning, the ideal life of serene harmony and happy wisdom. Love of the decorous and smooth. His mind, neither philosophic nor historical, but strongly philological and moralistic. Freedom, clearness, purity, simplicity. Faith in nature educational and social ideas. What made Erasmus the man from whom his contemporaries expected their salvation, or whose lips they hung to catch the word of deliverance? He seemed to them the bearer of a new liberty of the mind, a new clearness, purity, and simplicity of knowledge, a new harmony of healthy and right living. He was to them as the possessor of newly discovered, untold wealth which he had only to distribute. What was there in the mind of the great Rotterdamer which promised so much to the world? The negative aspect of Erasmus's mind may be defined as the heartfelt aversion to everything unreasonable, insipid, purely formal, with which the undisturbed growth of medieval culture had overburdened and overcrowded the world of thought. As often as he thinks of the ridiculous textbooks out of which Latin was taught in his youth, disgust rises in his mind, and he execrates them, Mametractus, Brachilogus, Ebrardus, and all the rest, as a heap of rubbish which ought to be cleared away. But this aversion to the superannuated which had become useless and soundless extended much farther. He found society, and especially religious life, full of practices, ceremonies, traditions, and conceptions from which the spirit seemed to have departed. He does not reject them offhand and altogether. What revolts him is that they are so often performed without understanding and right feeling. But to his mind, highly susceptible to the foolish and ridiculous things, and with a delicate need of high decorum and inward dignity, all that sphere of ceremony and tradition displays itself as a useless, nay, a hurtful scene of human stupidity and selfishness. And, intellectualist as he is, with his contempt for ignorance, he seems to know where that those religious observances, after all, may contain manual sentiments of unexpressed and unformulated piety. Through his triatrices, his letters, his colloquies especially, there always passes, as if one was looking at a gallery of Bruegel's pictures, a procession of ignorant and covetous monks who, by their sanctimony and humbug, impose upon the trustful multitude and fare sumptuously themselves. As a fixed motif, such motifs are numerous with Erasmus, there always recurs his gibe about the superstition that a person was safe by dying in the gown of a Franciscan or a Dominican. Fasting, prescribed prayers, the observance of holidays should not be altogether neglected, but they become displeasing to God when we repose our trust in them and forget charity. The same holds good of confession, indulgence, all sorts of blessings. Pilgrimages are worthless. The veneration of the saints and of their relics is full of superstition and foolishness. The people think they will be preserved from disasters during the day if only they have looked at the painted image of St. Christopher in the morning. We kiss the shoes of the saints and their dirty handkerchiefs, and we leave their books, their most holy and efficacious relics, neglected. Erasmus's dislike of what seemed antiquated and worn out in his days went farther still. It comprised the whole intellectual scheme of medieval theology and philosophy. 
In the syllogistic system he found only subtlety and arid ingenuity. All symbolism and allegory when fundamentally alien to him and indifferent, though he occasionally tried his hand at an allegory, and he never was mystically inclined. Now here is just as much as the deficiencies of uh, his own mind as the qualities of the system which made him unable to appreciate it. While he struck at the abuse of ceremonies and of church practices both with noble indignation and well-aimed mockery, a proud irony to which he was not fully entitled preponderates in his condemnation of a scholastic theology which he could not quite understand. It was easy always to talk with a sneer of the conservative divines of his time as Magistri Nostri. His uh, noble indignation hurt only those who deserved castigation and strength in what was valuable, but his mockery hurt the good as well as the bad in spite of them, assailed both the institution and persons, and injured without elevating them. The individualist Erasmus never understood what it meant to offend the honor of an office, an order, or an establishment, especially when that institution is the most sacred of all the church itself. Erasmus's conception of the church was no longer purely Catholic. Of that glorious structure of medieval Christian civilization, with its mystic foundation, its strict hierarchy construction, its splendidly fitting symmetry, he saw hardly anything but its lot of outward details and ornament. Instead of the world, which Thomas Aquinas and Dante had described, according to their vision, Erasmus saw another world, full of charm and elevated feeling, and these he held up before his compatriots. It was the world of antiquity, but illuminated throughout by Christian faith. It was a world that had never existed as such, for with the historical reality, which the times of Constantine and the great fathers of the church had manifested, that of declining Latinity and deteriorating Hellenism, the oncoming barbarism and the oncoming Byzantinism, he had nothing in common. Erasmus's imagined world was an amalgamation of pure classicism. This meant for him Cicero, Horace, Plutarch. For to the flourished period of the Greek mind, he remained, after all, a stranger and pure biblical Christianity. Could it be a union? Not really. In Erasmus's mind, the light falls, just as we saw in the history of his career, alternately on the pagan antique and on the Christian. But the warp on his mind is Christian. His classicism only serves him as a form, and from antiquity he only chooses those elements which in ethical tendency are in conformity with his Christian ideal. And because of this, Erasmus, although he appeared after a century of earlier humanism, is yet new to his time. The union of antiquity and the Christian spirit which had haunted the mind of Petrarch, the father of humanism, which was lost sight of by his disciples, enchanted as they were by the irresistible brilliance of the antique beauty of form, this union was brought about by Erasmus. What pure Latinity and the classic spirit meant to Erasmus, we cannot feel as he did, because its realization does not mean to us, as to him, a difficult conquest and a glorious triumph. To feel it thus, one must have acquired, in a hard school, the hatred of barbarism, which already, during his first years of authorship, had suggested the composition of the anti-barbari. The abusive term, for all that, is old and rude, is already gothic, goths. The term barbarism, as used by Erasmus, comprised much of what we value most in the medieval spirit. Erasmus's conception of the great intellectual crisis of his day was distinctly dualistic. He saw it as a struggle between old and new, which, to him, meant evil and good. In the advocates of tradition, he saw only obscurantism, conservatism, and ignorant opposition to banal literae, that is, the good cause for which he and his partisans battled. Of the rise of that higher culture, Erasmus had already formed the conception which has since dominated the history of the Renaissance. 
It was a revival, begun two or three hundred years before his time, in which, besides literature, all the plastic arts shared. Side by side with the terms restitution and reflorescence, the word renaissance crops up repeatedly in his writings. The world is coming to its senses, as if awaking out of a deep sleep. Still, there are some left who recalcitrate pertinaciously, clinging convulsively with hands and feet to their old ignorance. They fear that if bonnet literae are reborn and the world grows wise, it will come to light that they have known nothing. They do not know how pious the ancients could be, what sanctity characterizes Socrates, Virgil, and Horace, or Plutarch's Moralia, how rich the history of antiquity is in examples of forgiveness and true virtue. We should call nothing profane that is pious and conduces to good morals. No more dignified view of life was ever found than that which Cicero propounds in De Senectute. In order to understand Erasmus's mind and the charm which it had for his contemporaries, one must begin with the ideal of life that was present before his inward eye as an splendid dream. It is not his own in particular. The whole Renaissance cherished that wish of reposeful life and yet serious intercourse of good and wise friends in the cool shade of a house under trees where serenity and harmony would dwell. The age yearned for the realization of simplicity, sincerity, truth, and nature. Their imagination was always steeped in the ancients of antiquity, though at heart it is more nearly connected with medieval ideas than they themselves were aware. In the circle of the Medici, it is the ideal of Careggi. In Rabelais, it embodies itself in the fancy of the Abbey of Telim. It finds voice in Moore's Utopia and in the work of Montaigne. In Erasmus's writings, that ideal which ever recurs in the shape of a friendly walk, followed by a meal in a garden house. It is found as an opening scene of the anti-barbari in the numerous descriptions of meals with Colette and the numerous convivia of the colloquies. Especially in the Convivium Religiosum, Erasmus has elaborately pictured his dream, and it would be worthwhile to compare it, on the one hand with Telim, and on the other with the fantastic design of a pleasure garden which Bernard Policy describes. The little Dutch 18th-century country seats and garden houses in which the national spirit took great delight are the fulfillment of a purely Erasmian ideal. The host of the Convivium Religiosum says, to me, a simple country house, a nest, is pleasanter than any palace, and, if he be king who lives in freedom and according to his wishes, surely I am king here. Life's true joy is in virtue and piety. If there are Epicureans who live pleasantly, then none are more truly Epicureans than they who live in holiness and piety. The ideal joy of life is also perfectly idyllic insofar that it requires an aloofness from earthly concerns and contempt for all that is sordid. It is foolish to be interested in all that happens in the world, to pride oneself on one's knowledge of the market, of the King of England's plans, the news from Rome, conditions in Denmark. The sensible old man of the Colloquium Senile has an easy post of honor, a safe mediocrity. He judges no one and nothing and smiles upon all the world. Quiet for oneself, surrounded by books, that is, of all things, most desirable. On the outskirts of this ideal of serenity and harmony, numerous flowers of aesthetic value blow, such as Erasmus's sense of decorum, his great need of kindly courtesy, his pleasure in gentle and obliging treatment in culture and easy matters. Close by are some of his intellectual peculiarities. He hates the violent and extravagant, therefore the choruses of the great drama displease him, the merit of his own poems he sees in the fact that they pass passion by, they abstain from pathos altogether, 
there is not a single storm in them no mountain torrent overflowing its banks no exaggeration whatever there is great frugality in words my poetry would rather keep within bounds and exceed them rather hung in the shore that cleaved the high seas in another place he says i am always most pleased by a poem that does not differ too much from prose but prose of the best sort be it understood as philoxenus accounted those the most palatable fishes that are not true fishes and the most savoury meat what is no meat the most pleasant voyage that along the shores and the most agreeable walk that along the water's edge so i take a special pleasure in a rhetorical poem and a poetical liberation so that poetry is tasted in prose and the reverse that is the man of half tones of fine shadings of the thought that is never completely expressed but he adds far-fetched conceits may please others to me the chief concern seems to be that we draw our speech from the matter itself and apply ourselves less to showing off our invention than to present the thing that is the realist from this conception results his admirable simple clarity the excellent division and presentations of his argument but it also causes his lack of that and the prolixity by which he is characterized his machine runs too smoothly in the endless apologie of his later years ever new arguments occur to him new passages to point or quotations to support his idea he praises laconism but never practices it erasmus never coins a sentence which rounded off and pithy becomes a proverb and in his manner lives there are no current quotations from erasmus the collector of the adagia has created no new ones of his own the true occupation for a mind like his was paraphrasing in which indeed he amply indulged soothing down and unfolding was just the work he liked it is characteristic that he paraphrased the whole new testament except the apocalypse erasmus's mind was neither philosophic nor historic his was neither the work of exact logical discrimination nor of grasping the deep sense of the way of the world in broad historical visions in which the particulars themselves in their multiplicity and variegation form the image his mind is philological in the fullest sense of the word but by that alone he would not have conquered and captivated the world his mind was at the same time of a deeply ethical and rather strong aesthetic trend and those three together have made him great the foundation of erasmus's mind in his fervent desire of freedom clearness purity simplicity and rest it is an old idea of life to which he gave new substance by the wealth of his mind without liberty life is no life and there is no liberty without repose the fact that he never took sides definitely resulted from an urgent need of perfect independence each engagement even a temporary one was felt as a fetter by erasmus an interlocutor in the colloquies in which he so often spontaneously reveals his own ideals of life declares himself determined neither to marry nor to take holy orders nor to enter a monastery nor into any connection from which he will afterwards be unable to free himself at least not before he knows himself completely when will that be never perhaps on no other account do i congratulate myself more than on the fact that i have never attached myself to any party erasmus says towards the end of his life liberty should be spiritual liberty in the first place but he that is a spiritual judgeth all things yet he himself is judged of no man is the word of st paul to what purpose should he require prescriptions who of his own accord does better things than human loves require what arrogance it is to bind by institutions a man who is clearly laid by the inspirations of the divine spirit in erasmus we already find the beginning of that optimism which judges upright man good enough to dispense with fixed forms and rules 
as more in utopia and rabelais erasmus relies already on the dictates of nature which produces man as inclined to good and which we may follow provided we are imbued with faith and piety in this line of confidence in what is natural and desire of the simple and reasonable erasmus's educational and social ideas lie here he is far ahead of his times it would be an attractive undertaking to discuss erasmus's educational ideals more fully they foreshadow exactly those of the eighteenth century the child should learn in playing by means of things that are agreeable to its mind from pictures its faults should be gently corrected the flogging and abuse of its schoolmaster is erasmus's abomination the office itself is holy and venerable to him education should begin from the moment of birth probably erasmus attached too much value to classicism here as elsewhere his friend peter gilles should implant the rudiments of the ancient languages in his two-year-old son that he may greet his father with endearing stammerings in greek and latin but what gentleness and clear good sense shines from all erasmus says about instruction and education the same holds good of his views about marriage and woman in the problem of sexual relations he distinctly sides with the woman from the conviction there is a great deal of tenderness and delicate feeling in his conception of the positions of the girl and the woman few characters of the colloquies have been drawn with so much sympathy as the girl with the lower and the cultured woman in the witty conversation with the abbot erasmus's ideal of marriage is truly social and hygienic let us beget children for the state and for christ says the lover children endowed by their upright parents with a good disposition children who see the good example of home which is to guide them again and again he reverts to the mother's duty to suckle the child herself he indicates how the house should be arranged in a simple and cleanly manner he occupies himself with the problem of useful children's dress who stood up at that time as he did for the fallen girl and for the prostitute compelled by necessity who saw so clearly the social danger of marriages of persons infected with the new scourge of europe so violently abhorred by erasmus he would wish that such a marriage should at once be declared null and void by the pope erasmus does not hold with the easy social theory is still quite current in the literature of his time which casts upon women all the blame of adultery and lewdness with the savages who live in a state of nature he says the adultery of men is punished but that of women is forgiven here it appears at the same time that erasmus knew be it half in jest the conception of natural virtue and happiness of naked islanders in a savage state it soon crops up again in montaigne and the following centuries develop it into a literary dogma End of chapter 12